Welcome to PwC's accounting podcast series. I'm Heather Horn. Today, we're turning our attention to the area of deals and specifically the differences in accounting after you figure out if you have an asset acquisition or a business combination. With all the changes in today's environment, we thought it'd be helpful to educate you on what it means after the deal is done. Joining me remotely are frequent podcast guest, Andrea Sol and PwC deals partner, Dan Gorlick. Also, Remember to stick around for our new bonus question focused on looking for silver linings in this crisis as we do our part to spread some optimism during difficult times. I'm really enjoying hearing this additional insight from our guests, and I hope you do too. So Andreas and Dan, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about the differences in the accounting for asset acquisitions and business combinations. And as you well know, the FASB changed the model a couple of years ago, and I think people have had some time to get used to some of the new rules around the difference between asset acquisitions and business combinations. And obviously, we have information in our guides and other publications, but I think what people don't always focus on is sort of the knock-on effects of, okay, you know you have one or the other, but what does that really mean from an accounting perspective as well as even we're going to talk about deal communication and, and other things. So really looking forward to our conversation today, kind of highlight some of those key differences. And Andreas, I know you'll also slip in there a few examples of some surprises that we may see around the difference between or something that we you may automatically think is a business combination, but that's really an asset acquisition. So looking forward to jumping straight into our conversation. So maybe Dan, I'll start with you. Yeah, thanks, Heather. Um, this is an area that a lot of clients struggle with in the judgments around the analysis, but it's also very imperative um, when you do a transaction in terms of how you communicate the impacts to your investors. So said differently, if you're acquiring a whole business, um, there's a lot of reporting and accounting implications, but the impacts to the P&L go forward might be markedly different than if you acquired just a specific set of assets or a division of that same business. One of the reasons that this conversation may become more um, relevant as we sit in this trying time for the COVID-19 pandemic is that you're going to see several buyers look at targets, not for the entirety of their business, but maybe strategically just taking on specific assets or even specific um, segments of their business, which ultimately leads you to a completely different answer when you work through the accounting implications. Andres, can you expand on why this matters? Sure, Heather. So historically, you know, when we talk about M&A transactions, we've almost always been referring to an acquisition of a business and the entire the, the deal model and, and everything that's set up for you know, how the uh, how the transaction will impact the financial statements is sort of has that as an implicit assumption. Maybe I should just emphasize here we're talking about the accounting being an asset acquisition versus a a business combination. Some people are probably aware that there's a concept of in tax that you could have an asset acquisition. This is a completely different concept. So we're not dealing with asset acquisitions for tax purposes. And so it's important to distinguish between whether something is an asset acquisition or a, a business combination, because it may have a fundamentally different impact on the go forward earnings that uh, that come out of the transaction and that reality you want to make sure that that's reflected in the uh, the deal model that's reflected in the information that goes to senior management and maybe even to the board to uh, get approval for the transaction 
Yeah, I think that's an exactly that's exactly right, Andreas, and a very good point. When we deal with a lot of the buyers out there, the importance of the EPS impacts and the impacts of the ongoing accounting becomes very paramount when they start communicating with their investors. For instance, EPS is driven largely by the income impacts, both in the year that they buy the target or in some cases, just the basket of assets, and then ongoing as it compares to the deal model. How you account for those things generally becomes a rub once the deal model disconnects with how either the asset costs are capitalized onto the balance sheet and then amortized go forward, which could have ramifications on EPS guidance that's both given to the street and compared against the actuals, or in the cases of potentially a business combination, if you expense all those impacts up front, the EPS might be lower in the first year and then better in years going forward. The most important thing from my perspective is a solid understanding amongst all the parties and communications with the investors and the stakeholders early on as to what the relevant accounting is. Yeah, I think communication as a theme is always important, especially anytime you're doing transactions like this. So then obviously with this backdrop of how important it is, maybe we can segue into talking about some of the differences, starting with transaction costs, which I know is a big area. So Andreas, from the perspective of the buyer, how do you think about transaction costs in the two different models? Transaction costs, what we mean are things like fees paid to bankers, lawyers, accountants for due diligence, putting together the the structure of the transaction, maybe even some tax advice, all all those kinds of costs that are uh, incurred at uh, leading up to and around the time of closing of the the transaction. So the transactions account for as a business combination, those expenses are going to be uh, are, are going to be expensed as incurred typically at the time of closing of the transaction. On the other hand, if it's an asset acquisition, which is a, a cost accumulation model, all of the costs of the acquisition are rolled into the carrying value of the, uh, of the asset, and then they get brought into the P&L over time through, uh, through amortization. So the, the, the net result is that you know, for an asset acquisition, you're going to have higher net income initially and then lower net income over, uh, over time relative to business combination. Going back to the point you made on communications, Heather, the point Andreas was making around the difference between those two models, most of our clients, at least in the corporate development or the investor realm, think of all of the costs, whether it be to bankers, lawyers, accountants, to be part of the overall investment. And when they schedule out the cash flows in their deal model, a lot of time account for those over a period of time and how they think about the return on the investment. If the end result is that it's a business combination and the acquisition thereof, and therefore you expense all those costs in the first year, you could have marketably different financial impacts in the first year. And that could be something that has to be reconciled for both investors, bankers, and the like. Uh, So going back to the point you made, the communications early on and getting to the accounting judgments early stave off a lot of the surprises that generally come up as the actual numbers get laid out for financial reporting, different than what ultimately would have been in the deal thesis or the deal model. Do you see a clear preference for one of those two models, or is it more around knowing what you're getting yourself into and communicating and making sure everyone understands? Well, I wouldn't say that there's one preference per se. A lot of times what we think of as accountants as capitalizing everything onto the balance sheet, sometimes to the deal practitioners can be seen as a bad thing because then that's a drag on earnings over time. 
as those costs unwind themselves through the periodic income statements. A lot of times it's easier to have things taken in the first period. That way it's a more clean look for the investor community when the amortization happens over that period of time. However, some clients, they may want to have the amortization and the income impacts happen over time just because it's a smoother volatility for their for their income statement as the case may be. Dan, I think that that's a good point. One, one other thing I might highlight that uh, management teams might think about is certainly in some cases, the objectives or the explicit hurdles that are in stock option vesting criteria or in other um, compensation structures that uh, they, they may have an EPS or earnings per share element. And therefore, how this is treated might impact whether a uh, you know bonus is uh, accrued or whether a option is exercisable. So another thing just to make sure people are thinking about. Very helpful. So then why don't we move on to another area where I know we get questions, where we have a lot of clients and then companies that they're targeting that are investing heavily in research and development. And this is particularly causes significant issues in the life sciences space. So Dan, can you share what some of the issues we see in this area? Yeah, certainly. So when you have businesses or targets that have in-process R&D, the differences between the business combination or business acquisition model and the asset acquisition model can be very stark. But when you think about a business combination and acquiring a target that qualifies as a whole business, any goodwill and intangible assets are capitalized up front, including IPR and or intellectual property related to research and development. However, if, an, if it's an asset acquisition, those same amounts would be expensed at the date of the acquisition unless there was an alternative use, which generally the practice is that there is not. So this is another area that highlights the differences that you can get to where you can have a significant charge in the first period that ends up being more of a period cost than something that gets capitalized in the business if you were to acquire something that qualifies as a whole business. So Heather, maybe I can give sort of a real world example here that, we, uh, that we've seen a few times in, in, in recent years. Um, so imagine you are acquiring a biotech company and frankly, it could even be a public biotech company. And it has one really compelling product that uh, does not yet have regulatory approval for sale, but it's very promising. So, so you acquire that company and you conclude that virtually all of the value of the company resides in that one uh, product that's under development, which would be an in-process R&D asset. Well, under the, the new guidance that came out a few years ago, what would happen in there is you would likely conclude that even though you were acquiring a public company, that that is an asset acquisition. And so the implication of what Dan was just mentioning is that you could potentially spend billions of dollars acquiring this public company and substantially all of that uh, cost of acquiring that uh, company would be expensed in the, uh, the period that the transaction closes as opposed to being hung up on the balance sheet and potentially amortized over you know 10 or 15 years. Why don't we move on then to another area, which would be contingent consideration. And just like it sounds, these would be payments that are made to the seller that are contingent on a future event, such as a regular to approving a product. Your example, Andreas, that they approve this um, product that they are developing. So what did we see um, for differences there, Dan? And so maybe what I can do is set the stage for what contingent consideration is and when it's used. 
And then Andreas can give some perspectives on some of the accounting ramifications of either a business combination or an asset acquisition. And this is a very topical point as we think about all the volatility that's in the marketplace right now, as deals are either finishing up or still trying to get done. Intrinsic consideration is effectively a way that a buyer and seller that can't agree on a final price or specific cash flows in a deal model can agree to compensate one another based on the performance of the acquired business, or in some cases, the acquired assets, as the case may be, after the date um, that the deals commenced. But those performance metrics could be tied to things such as specific customer performance um, or EBITDA. And then ultimately, it would reside as either a payable or receivable on either side's books that have measurements considerations thereof, depending on whether or not you conclude it's a business or an asset acquisition. This is an area where we think it's going to be much more prevalent as deals are trying to get you know, executed with a lot of uncertainty around the market and a lot of uncertainty around cash flows and you know, just the economy as a whole. So maybe just following up on what Dan was saying, you know, there's a fundamental difference in how you uh, account for the contingent consideration liability, whether you're acquiring a business or you're acquiring assets. So in, in the case of a business combination, you know, you're going to record a liability related to the contingent consideration arrangement at fair value on day one. And then the offset to that is you're going to have some sort of a uh, an asset recorded, perhaps uh, if the contingency relates to a specific asset, such as approval of a uh, a drug by the by the FDA. Well, then maybe the other side of that liability is uh, that you book some sort of an intangible asset for that drug. In other cases, if it's something tied to EBITDA or or a broader metric like that, it might end up that the offset is to uh, is to goodwill. And then in future periods, as the uh, fair value of that liability changes, so it becomes maybe more or less probable that a payment's going to be made, or maybe the, the amount of the payment that you're expecting to make is changing, that liability gets remeasured at fair value, will go to the income statement immediately. That's a fundamentally different than how you would treat it in, a, uh, in an asset acquisition, where most people on day one would uh, re- record a liability based on the amount that's probable, recognizing that in some cases, the amount that's probable might actually be zero, so you might not book anything. And then in subsequent periods, as it becomes probable you're going to make a payment, you would record a liability for that. And then the other side of that entry is likely going to be a uh, some sort of an intangible asset. So in my pharmaceutical example, um, as it becomes probable you're going to make a payment, you're probably recording an increase in the value of that uh, intangible related to the pharmaceutical product. And that would then end up in the P&L over time as the, uh, as the asset was uh, amortized in the future. So you, you have a very fundamental difference here, not only in terms of the uh, timing of the uh, of when it hits your PL, but also the uh, the the amount. Yeah, when I was listening to you, Andreas, I was thinking that we may need to have Dan back to help with deal structuring. So, given some of these these huge differences, but I think that's probably a topic for another podcast. So, um, so then, Andreas, why don't we move on to another area which we've spent a lot of time talking about in the past few weeks about 
goodwill impairment. Um, today, I'd just like to talk about goodwill and how it's created in a business combination. So can you walk through those models? Sure. So this is another fundamental difference. So in a uh, business combination, so if you acquire a business, you almost always will have some goodwill uh, recorded in the uh, in, in the financial statements afterwards. And that is, of course, an indefinite lived asset that uh, does not get amortized, at least not currently, um, and instead gets tested for impairment on an annual basis or when there's a trigger. So the amount that's hung up in goodwill on day one may not hit the uh, income statement for a very long time, if uh, if ever. In an asset acquisition, on the other hand, there, there is no goodwill, which means that to the extent that you have economic goodwill in the transaction, it has to be recorded on day one in the form of another asset. So if I acquire a company and it has, say, three intangibles, but it doesn't meet the definition of a business, and I have economic goodwill in the transaction, which means basically that if I value the three intangibles independently, it doesn't add up to the price that I paid for the company, I now have to take that excess, which is what I would record as goodwill in, a, in an acquisition of a business, and I have to spread it, typically pro rata, across those three uh, three intangibles. And then those would then be amortized into uh, into income over uh, over time. So there's a real difference there in terms of, again, the uh, timing over which the uh, acquisition price gets uh, amortized into uh, into the P&L. So then, Andreas, a question I know we get, um, and I'll ask under both cases, do you ever see where there's a day one impairment if someone has, if, if the deal is being accounted for as an asset acquisition? So day one impairments are, are extremely rare. And in the case of an asset acquisition, the reason it's rare is because of the way the impairment model works. So for those who listened to our other podcast mm -hmm. a few weeks ago on how the impairment model works, things like intangible assets are tested for impairment under a model where you first look at undiscounted cash flows. And so even if you agreed to buy an asset, say, back in January, and you close now, and it's clearly has a fair value that's lower than what it was in January, but you weren't able to get out of the deal, you likely don't have a day one impairment because it's still likely that the price that you're paying for that uh, asset is still um, less than the undiscounted cash flows it's going to generate in the future. Said differently, even if the fair value is less than carrying value, that likely does not yield an impairment unless what you acquired is an indefinite lived intangible. In that case, the impairment model is you compare fair value to carrying value. And so if what you purchased in January is now worth less, you might actually have an impairment fairly, uh, fairly quickly. Yeah. And I guess today's, in today's environment, maybe it's a little more likely than perhaps in the past. So why don't we move on then to any other issues, um, let's start with the buyers that a buyer should take into account. So Heather, one, one of the things that I think a lot of people aren't aware of is when, and again, your, your M&A process may be built with this in mind without you having really even thought about it, is that when you buy a business, the accounting standard allows you to spend up to a year 
finalizing the acquisition accounting. So there's a sort of a recognition that it might take time between closing of the transaction and when you have all the information to determine what are the assets acquired and to assess what the, the fair values of those assets are. So you have up to a year to to sort all of that out, which gives you time to hire an appraiser if necessary, and they do their thing. And in the case of an asset acquisition, you don't have that uh, same luxury. The, the standard doesn't afford you this, uh, this ability. And so you basically have to finalize the accounting for the, the transaction in the quarter in which the closing of the, uh, the transaction. So as a practical matter, one of the things that that implies is that if you close a transaction this quarter that's an asset acquisition and you figure out in the following quarter that maybe there were some other assets you'd acquired or maybe that the values were different than what you initially thought. That is now, if it's material, you know, a correction of an error, it's not um, an adjustment that gets pushed back to uh, the acquisition date like you would in a business combination. Some of the things that come to mind, Heather, when you ask around what are some other considerations? And this is certainly becoming a consistent theme of this discussion. You know, there's things as simple as how it gets communicated to investors. You know, there might be a press release that says we've made a strategic business acquisition, but when the financials finally come out or the press releases, the numbers are indicative of something that looks more like an asset acquisition. And it could spark some questions from stakeholders as to what ultimately the outcome was or what ultimately the transaction was. Similarly, in something we touched on earlier, looking at all the key performance indicators, not only of the ongoing business, but any synergies or other things that were communicated to the street out of the acquisition, whether it's a target of assets or a business, need to be modeled out. Yeah, there's maybe one other thing, Heather, that I think I want to maybe drive home here, which is another difference between the two is that uh, there's a lot more disclosure requirements around business combinations than there are for asset acquisitions. And one in particular is worth mentioning, which is that under GAAP, we're not talking about SEC rules here, we're talking just purely around US GAAP here. There are requirements for pro forma disclosures um, when you have a business combination, and those don't exist if you uh, if you have a an asset acquisition. And so Sometimes those pro formas, while they're much less complicated than what's required under the SEC rules, they can still be challenging to uh, to pull together. Particularly if you, uh, you know, if the target is a lot smaller than the uh, the acquirer. Okay, those are those are all very helpful, and I know we haven't focused as much on the seller, but what are some key reminders you would give to the seller? Yeah, I think Heather, uh, the accounting models have actually in some ways helped us out a little bit in their convergence in terms of the principles behind derecognizing either an asset or a business. And what's also helped is just the advent of the new revenue recognition standard is also much more a controls-based model. So whether it's the divestment of a business, specific assets, you're really looking at which point the seller has lost control of those items as the accounting principles would spell out. So we often wouldn't see many differences in how you would analyze whether or not you've disposed of a business or assets. Where there is complications is when buyers and sellers put either protections in or reps and warranties or things like puts and calls that could call into question whether or not that control was given up. 
as of the point of sale. And so really, it's a matter of determining under all the accounting models, inclusive of revenue recognition, which does need to be looked to when you're talking about disposing of an asset, um, is whether or not the seller has lost control or given up control of those specific items before they de-recognize the assets or in some cases, the entirety of the business. Yeah, maybe if I can just add to that, there's one sort of nuance that a lot of people aren't aware of as it relates to uh, you know how you uh, how you handle dispositions. So one of the questions is when I dispose of uh, a business or a piece of a business, you know what gets removed from the balance sheet. Now some things are pretty obvious that if legal title to something transfers, it goes. But what's less obvious is what do I do if I dispose of part of a business and there's goodwill related to that on the uh, on the balance sheet. And this is, again, where there's a fundamental difference because a, only a business can attract goodwill. That means if I sell something that doesn't meet the definition of a business, none of the goodwill goes with the transaction. And so historically, that maybe wasn't that big of a deal when virtually everything I sold that wasn't a individual asset. Uh, met the definition of a business, and therefore some goodwill went with it. In this new world, we're in a very different place. So maybe if I can just give a quick example. So if I had an operation that included, say, five hotels, and they had been acquired over time, and some goodwill was recorded on the acquisition of each, if I know now go and sell one of those hotels, in many cases, that will no longer meet the definition of a business, which means that I sell that hotel no goodwill goes with it. Now I have back on my balance sheet, the goodwill related to five hotels, but I only have four hotels left to support it. So maybe if the hotel is appreciated in value over time, the the four hotels might be able to support all of that goodwill. But at some point, if I keep selling off hotels, I'm going to have a amount of goodwill left behind that's too much for the remaining hotels to uh, sustain. And so even though all of the hotels may have appreciated in value and they were all good acquisitions and I'm getting very favorable terms on the dispositions, the vagaries of the accounting model may yield an impairment at some point down the line if I dispose of too many of the hotels and now all of a sudden there's too much goodwill left on the books related to the handful of hotels that I've retained. So just the, one of the many nuances that we're encountering. Yes, sounds like uh, enough for a whole other conversation. So, um, so Dan and Andreas, before we wrap up today, though, I do have one question for you. And this actually has to do with how we're working now. In the interest of bringing some positivity to our listeners, um, are asking now the question this week of what you like about working from home. So maybe, Andreas, I'll start with you because I do know that you like it. So go ahead. I definitely like it. I, I certainly like the fact that I can control the thermostat in my uh, in my office at home. But the, uh, the the view is also a bit greener out of my window here. So uh, I have at least two things that I like better. Yes, two good positives. How about you, Dan? Um, so I have three small children at home: um, Emerson, eight; uh, Cameron, who turned six today; and Paxton, who's a little over a one, our boy. Um, so getting to spend a lot more time with my family has certainly been a positive aspect to all this, if there is any silver lining. Um, And I think just generally, when you speak to more and more people, I think we're getting a little bit 
slower in terms of appreciation for little things and it's blocked out some of the noise in the world that just creates a lot of tension that sort of gets let up a little bit. So I think people are re-energizing around what's important and um, thinking towards the future. So I'm excited about what's next and and really appreciative that the firm is as mobile as it is around these times. Yeah, really agree. Um, there, there is definitely a lot to be thankful for. So good. Well, really appreciate the insights both and uh, look forward to having you back to continue this conversation. Hope you enjoyed this episode and especially hearing from our guests about silver linings in the current environment. Please feel free to reach out to me with any of your thoughts on this topic. Join me back here again next week when we turn our attention to revenue recognition. Starting on Tuesday with the impact of contract changes and modifications, and then moving to contract costs on Thursday. Angela Ferguson will be joining me for both episodes, and Pat Durbin will be back as well. So that you never miss an episode, subscribe to this series wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on the latest content, let's connect on LinkedIn. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.